0: Welcome to Bespoke Investment Group's Bespokecast. I'm George Perks, macro strategist for Bespoke Investment Group. Starting with this episode, Bespoke will be releasing monthly conversations with market professionals and economists whose views we find interesting or insightful into the world of finance and economics. If you like what you hear today, you can learn more about our firm by visiting our website, bespokepremium.com. Bespoke offers financial market research and insight to investors of all types, ranging from individuals to large institutions. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Bespoke Invest. Before we start, we want to offer a special thanks this month to Amy Keene of the Financial Times for her advice on setting up the infrastructure for this podcast. Thanks so much, Amy. We really appreciate it. This month, our guest is IMF and hedge fund veteran Mark Dow. Mark's blog, Behavioral Macro, and his Twitter account, at Mark underscore Dow, are widely followed for their insights into macro investing, and he was kind enough to spend an hour with us discussing his background, trading strategy, views on some specific asset classes and the economy, and risk management. We hope you enjoy the discussion. All right, we are lucky enough today to have a conversation with macro investor and market savant, Mark Dow. He's joining us from Laguna Beach, California, and it's great to have him on. Mark, welcome. Thank you for joining us.
1: George, thanks for having me.
0: So before we get into sort of the fun talk about markets and the economy and how you see the world, would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself, Um, just some basic background?
1: Yeah. So, um... I uh, studied economics and uh, started working, my my working career at the Treasury Department as an international uh, economist, working primarily on emerging market countries that were having financial difficulties. This was in the the 90s, the early 90s, uh, and a lot of emerging market economies were just coming out from under their debt burdens. Back then, the problem was they had often had fixed exchange rates, they had borrowed a lot in dollars. And when they didn't have macroeconomic policies compatible with the exchange rate regime, the exchange rates busted, making their external debt extremely difficult, if not impossible to service. So they had to uh, reprofile, restructure and and things like that. Uh, And in particular, I worked on on the Paris Club, the the official uh, creditor negotiations with uh, with sovereigns. Uh, From there, I went to the International Monetary Fund, where I worked as a staff economist uh, for about four years. I worked on countries all over the world. And it was great great training ground for, for any, really it's great training ground for any economist. And then uh, I went to, uh, in the late 90s, I went to um, the buy side. Uh, in about 1997, a bunch of guys uh, were hired out of the IMF. I was the only one who went to the buy side. Everyone else went to the sell side. Mohammed Alarian was another one of those guys. There, there are a few out there. Uh, and um, I started as a sovereign analyst at the Putnam Investments in Boston. Uh, after a couple of years there, I got a job offer as a, to be a portfolio manager at Massachusetts Massachusetts Financial Services, just up the street there in Boston, uh, managing emerging market bonds. And I, I uh, jumped at the at the prospect. Did that for a number of years, and and then I moved uh, to to uh, a global macro hedge fund, one with an EM focus, but nonetheless global macro fund. The name Farrow in uh, based in in New York, and that was it. I worked there seven years, and then. Uh, came out and kind of managed a family office uh, and managed money for a handful of ex-colleagues. ex, ex- colleagues. Uh, And that's, that's what I do.
0: So your current role, you would describe yourself as a family office and sort of separately managed accounts and, and you're sort of working with folks that you're very familiar with and um, managing their money in a variety of different markets and, and using a variety of different techniques.
1: That's right. That's right. Uh, it's the the focus is the family, you know, is kind of the fam- family office. But a couple of my ex- colleagues asked asked if I would manage a little money for them, and I said sure. Kind of an option on on growing it into a larger business if if I if I want to. Uh, I have two styles. One is a trading style, which can be dormant for long periods of time, and then goes very aggressively when when I think there's an opportunity. Usually the payoff structures are highly asymmetric, or I don't get interested, and I use leverage. Uh, and then when that's on. I'm following the mark those those positions extremely extremely closely, uh, and then there's an investment style which is isn't quite so quick twitch, but it's almost always invested, uh, and that's uh, kind of a more, more more traditional product if you if you would. So I I have those two and and uh, for the family office, and then certain certain of my clients want one or the other or both, and I manage it, and it's great because the guys I uh, I have as clients. All but one are professional, are or have been professional money managers, and uh, they they don't need their hands held. They understand the kind of risk I take. They know me as a risk taker, so it's really uh, it's it's minimalist in terms of of, of kind of the the client the, the client management. It's it's quite nice.
0: That sounds really interesting. So sort of talking about those two, I mean, very different styles. Sort of what comes to mind is sort of uh, obviously this is often used as sort of a derogatory term in financial markets and undeservedly so but sort of a day trade short term position taking um with leverage i would imagine that's highly concentrated correct or I... super concentrated it's not it's more than a day trade for sure uh so i might hold a position for a month two
1: months it kind of depends on if it's how powerful i think the trend is it can be a week uh or or even less um obviously if it goes wrong it's less uh uh, cuz i cut them i cut them pretty pretty quickly uh and um but it, the 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 holding period is it, it really is dependent on on the kind of uh uh the the kind of trend i think we we might be in and you can use techniques to extend your holding period like uh taking you know take reducing the position by half if you if you hit a primary target uh and and then just kind of riding the rest with a trailing stop but uh, the idea really is you're you're trying to take advantage of a dislocation uh, in positioning and psychology, together with something that you think fundamentally makes sense. Uh, it, it, if if it doesn't fundamentally make sense, but you think it's uh, the market is really really off sides, in in terms of positioning and psychology anyway, you can do it. But typically, you you run a tighter stop, run it with a tighter stop, and you size it uh, you size it differently. Because your conviction level is going to be less if you're kind of betting against your your longer term fundamental view.
0: Right, that's perfectly understandable. You'd also mentioned leverage, so I'm assuming that you're using listed futures, um, options on futures. Do you do stuff OTC as well, or or does that?
1: No, no, pretty much futures uh, really is 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 what I like to futures and current. You know, and then just currency market. Uh, Those those are the two things I I, uh, use. I stay when I do the uh, when I use the the. the trading style, uh, it's super liquid stuff. I I don't do anything that isn't, uh, uh, isn't, isn't massively scalable. So I I can get in and out and, uh, and and not worry about it.
0: So, and then in terms of position sizes, you know, the number of positions you might have, not in terms of dollar position sizes, I I wouldn't presume to ask that sort of information, but, uh, and sort of the number of positions you would have on at a given time, would you have to no, 10, so right 20. now I have a
1: large number of positions on for me. Uh, I had and I had there's seven. Right. Uh, th- that's a large number in the trading style. That's a large yeah. number of, of positions. A couple of them are uh, there. One, you know, one is against the other. Uh, so it, in in essence, there. Um, if if I were to kind of break it down, I would say there are three distinct positions. Uh, Uh, three, three distinct positions, even though, uh, some of the positions have
0: two legs to them. So seven line items with three distinct positions. Yeah. Very interesting. So you do do relative value stuff as well, as opposed to sort of, you know, and relative value is often seen as a very quantitative sort of approach, but, um, not even getting to, you know, not like you know, fixed income arbitrage, relative value, that kind of thing. But uh, you take positions against each other as opposed to, oh, I think gold is gonna go up, you know, over the next week or something like that on its own.
1: Usually I take directional positions. Uh, that's what I usually do. But sometimes in the currency, if you want, for example, if you wanna be long uh, the Mexican peso in, in Euro terms, then you're gonna have two legs to the trade. Right. That makes um, sense. And- and later right now, I have uh, I, I have a trade uh, where I'm I'm, I'm short uh, the thirty-year future Treasury futures, and I'm long the five-year uh, in a duration uh, neutral uh, a duration neutral way. Uh, and so that's that also was you know two line items, but one one position.
0: That makes sense. And I guess since we're we've sort of moved into the world of, of individual positions it'd be great if we could sort of talk through a number of different asset classes and sort of get your thoughts around them um, you know as they currently stand and sort of how you think about them too because you know it's not just a directional thing obviously working in markets that that's sort of first level thinking i think is a fair way to describe it but also sort of what's the bigger framework at play um, so for instance with with the US bond market how, how do you currently look at things as far as the the way the yield curves shape we've seen some steepening off of the most recent lows. Um, We've seen rates rates move up, a a bear steepener in US rates. How how do you feel about that? Do you think that's been justified? And and what do you think's been driving that? Well, technically, I think it's justified
1: because guys have been putting on flatteners uh, forever. And because of the boy cries wolf effect, a lot of people say, "Okay, the, the Fed keeps telling us that they want want to hike, but they don't do it." Leads some people to believe that they really don't want to do it. They're actually looking for excuses not to hike. But that, I don't believe that that that's the case at all. Those are typically the people who are always you know always looking for something negative to say about the Fed. Uh, but uh, I think the odds are pretty good that that um, that they do hike in December, and uh, the you know the the short end of the curve is kind of pricing that into some degree. But you still get the sense that. Uh, a lot of the uh, interest rate sensitive positions that have kind of built up, you know, almost like uh, <laughs> cholesterol in your system, just keep layers and layers. Keep and it, it, people haven't really pared that back. So you you look at some of the REITs, they're trading heavy. Uh, the muni's until today have been uh, ha- have been going down significantly. You know, the closed end muni funds; those are a good a good indicator of uh, fixed income sentiment.
0: Even something like preferred shares too. That's another one I like to look at. That's really convex to rates and credit as well.
1: Exactly. You can look at utilities. You can look at a number of things that, at various degrees of proximity uh, to the, the the rate concept. But uh, so I, I think the positioning it, it still needs to wash out a little bit more, which is favorable uh, to uh, a steepener, uh, and uh, it's also a good hedge for two reasons. One, if inflation picks up faster than people think. It's not my base case. I think inflation is increasing, but I don't think it's gonna, it's, it's gonna take off. But in case it does, or even we get to a point where the market perceives that it's about to, and it kind of has a, a an exaggerated reaction, this is a really good hedge uh, for that. And the second reason I think it's a good hedge is because it carries positively. Typically, hedges are negative carry, right? Right. Uh, that's just how they go. You have to pay to buy a put. Uh, you have to pay uh to to short a bond uh, but in this particular case, because you have to buy almost five times as many five year futures to get the same risk as you do on a thirty year future it's more like four point four something uh, that it, the the carry that you get is actually uh significantly positive in fact it's more carry than you would get that if you bought than, than if you bought the thirty year bond outright so it's it carries about three percent per annum uh yeah you know i'm cuffing it uh of a a little, a little bit less than that Uh and, and so to have a positive uh, it's a, that's a nice carry in in the in the in the world we 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 are currently inhabiting uh and uh it's an awesome it's awesome carry for for a hedge so that's those are the reasons why i, I like it fundamentally i do think that uh, you know the inflations inflation is picking up a little bit not crazy but it's happening and and there's a there's a chance that we get kind of um Someday people wake up and say, "Oh, geez, it's really, it's real, it's on," and and could overreact to it. And uh, in that in in that instance, a five thirds would do well. It also, if you look at a long term chart, it's it got as low as 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 maybe a hundred and five basis points the spread between the two. It's now about one hundred and twenty seven. Uh, it could easily revert to two hundred if you look at a long term chart. You know, before the before the taper tantrum in two thousand thirteen, it was well above uh it was well above 2 uh you know, 200 uh so it, it, you know going back to 180 if your downside is 105 and your upside is 180 or 200 from 127 you have a nicely asymmetric uh payoff that's positive carry that's blow up protection it's it's kind of just a smart portfolio uh you know um
0: uh, addition so you had mentioned inflation picking up. Just just for sort of a ballpark from how you think about it, what would you consider a significant uptick in inflation? You know, a, a, an above surprise uptick in inflation to be, and something to like three percent core or something like that, or
1: no, I don't. That not quite. Not even that far. Just 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 crossing the Rubicon you know, into, you know, I look at, I often look at the, the number. you know, the, the Dallas trim mean, the, I, from the, you know, from the Dallas Fed, I look at that and get that, get that above two, get that to, to, to creep up above two, just move a little bit more in that direction. Stanley Fisher said they're pretty darn close to hitting their targets. Um, and I would expect them to go past their targets on inflation, you know, before, uh, before the cycle is done. So, uh, and these processes, as you well know, are not linear. Uh, my, my view, my longer term view that you also know is, is I think for a given uh, unit of GDP, uh, you know, for a given impulse of GDP, the inflation, a corresponding inflation uh, in the economy and in wages is going to be less than what we're traditionally accustomed to, because I think there's secular forces that are kind of dampening, uh, dampening that process. But we're, cyclically we're in a very good point finally uh for an in, inflation to start getting a little bit of traction like i said I don't, I don't i don't expect it to be a threat to the allocation of resources typically you have to get up above uh you know the, 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 where the relationship between uh in, investment and inflation goes nonlinear has historically been around 6 to 8 and maybe because we've had really low inflation for a long time that numbers lower let's say it's 4 to 5 I don't think we're going to get up 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 up, up in that up in that ballpark. So uh, it's it's uh, I don't fear inflation, but it might uh, upset investors uh, if it if it comes through uh, in a lumpy fashion and it leads people to expect a faster inflation than we're going to end up
0: with. Fair enough, that makes a, a great deal of sense. I, I think it's fair to say. So the other question I would have in sort of listening to you talk about the uh, term structure of interest rates is that since the Fed tightening cycle has begun there's sort of been a a very strong trend for bonds to bull flatten in or or at least bear flatten in response to tightening policy um at the front end of the curve um the decline in long-term rates, especially the 30-year being the best example, um, has been significant since the Fed started to tighten. Some of this is is probably not related to Fed tightening, but there does seem to be a fairly consistent trend of the market saying, okay, well, if you guys are tightening this much, we're going to get worried about growth. We're going to get worried about longer-term inflation. We don't believe you're going to run the economy hot. So you've gotten this flattening dynamic where short rates go up, long-term rates have risk premium come out of them. Um, Recently, though, that seems to have reversed, and we've started to See sort of more of the bear steepening or the or the outright steepening on the yield curve. Um, what do you think changed, and what do you think sort of flipped that switch? Because that does seem to have flipped that switch in the last six months or so, where where the market is no longer terrified uh, in terms of growth as far as what the bond market is saying from from what the Fed's doing. So I have a different interpretation. I don't think that the back end came down. If you look
1: since the taper tantrum, the two, year, the, the, the two year yield has been grinding its way upward for the past six months or so. It's kind of been going up and down, but sideways. But until then, it, it had been going up very steadily. Uh, so so uh, that, that's clear, you know, the, that's clear, uh, the, the steep, the, the flattening from the front end, what's, what's going on. The back end, I really just think it's a supply and, uh, supply and demand mismatch. Uh, and, and and the Fed owns a lot of bonds. There are a lot of people who are price sensitive who are buying these bonds, and this drove it lower and lower and lower and lower because we would you know over the past few years we have periodically have growth scares, and each time uh, the bonds rally and yields come down in the long end, and then the growth the growth scare scare diminishes, and the yields go go back up. But each time they were going up to a lower high. So that kind of tells me that there's a a bigger dynamic, and I just think it's a, a supply and demand imbalance. Uh, and people, be, you know, people always say the bond market is smarter than the equity market, and it's kind of myth behind it. A lot of guys don't fully understand it, at least a lot of the equity guys. So they look at it and they say, "There's an, there's economic information there." Much the same way people. Um, Said when the price of oil was going down, they said it must be a demand problem. Recession must be coming. I think they were they they were uh, they were reading information uh, into the price action that just wasn't there. So yeah, we've had our growth scares, and and, and back at the beginning of the year we had a significant one, uh, mostly because the price action led a lot of people to believe that it was there. But uh, and and the economy slows down a little bit maybe, but but not nearly as much as as people are inferring from the price action. So I think that's what's happened, uh, and now. Um, it, we're getting to the point where where I think people are starting to look down the road and say, you know, someday maybe the Fed won't be buying all these, you know, won't be reinvesting, and and maybe they'll even sell some bonds. And what are they going to do? Because from from the Fed side, uh, they there was some somewhat of a debate, at least among in, in FinTwit and and the financial community, is what should be, how should they sequence? Their normalization, uh, and some people said that they should sell bonds first to move the back end up, and some other people said they should raise raise the policy rates. And a year or so ago, I said the Fed's primary concern is not an overheating economy; uh, their primary concern is uh, financial stability. They don't want the market to get too complacent, uh, too far out over its skis, and so they they want to they, they want to indicate that they they're going to raise rates to get out, make sure that they're out in front of that. And when people Leverage in the financial markets—they're borrowing uh, at the front end. That's where they borrow. Uh, capital formation tends to take place further out the curve. So, if you're if you're the Fed, and this is always my argument, uh, if, if you're the Fed, and and your your primary concern is financial stability, well, you want to raise policy rates first and that's what they've done they did it last december and they're probably going to do it again however they're going to go really slow because the world economy uh is is in in a little rougher place and and as we've talked about many times uh the fed is now pay, paying much more attention to international developments part of the reason you know L- uh, Leo brainerd and and stanley fisher have, have featured so prominently they they have much more experience in crisis management and much more of an international uh out, out, outlook so they're they're taking that into account and if the dollar moves too fast even though it doesn't Pass through very strongly to the real economy. The financial transmission can be strong, particularly if the move is rapid or if we breach new levels. Uh, the dollar re- 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 reaches new levels. People tighten up, and that can have a chilling effect on 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 risk uh, risk taking, not only in financial markets but also in in the real economy. So I think the Fed uh, has been had been worried about financial stability, but now we're getting to the point where you know one year on or a year and a half on from when we were talking uh, about how the Fed should sequence things. Uh, they're starting to worry about overheating. Not that we're overheating, but it's much more of a real probability within the next uh, six months to a year. So uh, they're going to start talking about letting go of the long end because that addresses that concern to a greater degree. And I think that that sentiment is has is has been creeping in uh to the long end uh, and there's heavy positioning there so the combination of the two has led even though the bulk of the market is is still driven by people who are price insensitive at the margin a lot of the guys who kind of piled on piggybacked on those trades are letting go, and the the whisper that the Fed is going to start talking about letting go of some of its bonds having an effect on the long end uh, is, is starting to be heard. So I really think it's that what, that's what's going on and not that people have changed their mind so much about uh, a, a growth. I just don't think the the curve flattening was ever indicating nearly as much uh, about growth prospects as the market was was inferring
0: right and and to be clear i mean we've looked at this ourselves right we've you know the 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 historically almost mythic prediction uh of the yield curve on the economy as a whole yield curve flattening has has not really been a good indicator you get a lot of false positives that's when the yield curve inverts and financial intermediation starts getting messed up you know you have to borrow short and lend long but you're lending at lower rates and everything gets messed up when that happens that's been the signal historically as opposed to the sort of dramatic flattening action Granted, that's right. They have occurred at the same time. Um, what happened in the mid 2000s was a good example of that. But it, it, they are distinct processes and, and they have distinct effects on the economy as a whole, um, you know that that's what our research has found. So we're we're in agreement there. <laughs> no, definitely. I'll add one thing. I, I don't even
1: think it, at the but and that's traditionally how it's been. But now the interest rate levels in general are so low that I don't think a curve inversion would even signal the kind of thing that it used to signal.
0: So that's interesting. If we could talk about that a little bit because because there's been an argument that's been made that because interest rates are very low, um, there has been a uh, distortive effect on the term structure, and then in fact we should be adjusting the curve even even flatter than it currently is, and the curve's already inverted, and we're headed for a recession. Um, so, so you would actually take the opposite view that that's interesting. Would Would you mind expanding on that a little bit?
1: Yeah, no, I just don't think there's much informational content if we were to invert at these low levels, which was the discussion people were having recently, you know, a few months ago. It, it, even if that even if that had happened at these low levels, there's just not the information content in it. Uh, it really means you've got a bond shortage at the long end, and and the policymakers are trying to do something at the front end. Uh, th- that's th- that's really it. Um, if you're if, if if you're at higher higher levels, then you can have a bigger inversion of the yield curve, and it can mean something. But uh, but it's not you know it's it's not as if you can invert that much when when the policy rate is fifty basis points. It's just hard to have a, a massive inversion and. So the both the level and the fact that the, the there's so many price-sensitive buyers in uh, in the treasury market or in the market for sovereign you know, developed country sovereign bonds in general, uh, both of those things dampen the economic signal that that we should extract. So I don't look, you know, I look at the movements in the short term to see what people are are thinking, but I just don't think the levels or or the the slower twitch movements are, are telling carry a lot of carry nearly as much uh, economic information as they did once upon a time so I just, it's not that i'm i'm taking the opposite view i'm just saying there's just not a signal
0: got it so moving on to another fixed income asset class that that was regarded as a signal by many um and it it's looking like falsely in in late 2015 and uh, probably throughout all of 2015 with the oil sell off and so on and so forth uh, is high yield bonds. So uh, credit really blew out. It has since moderated dramatically. We're not back to spread tights um, for almost any of the high yield bond market at a sector level um, or in aggregate, there's still more risk premium than there was in in the summer of 2014 when uh, most indices made their spread tights. But, we sort of saw this large move wider in credit spreads, and some of the bank lending data, um, a good example would be the Federal Reserve Senior Loan Officer Survey, sort of indicated that we may be coming to the end of the credit cycle, and really the opposite has happened since that that reached a fever pitch uh, in Q1 of this year, and, and spreads have come in massively um, to the point that even some of the most distressed sectors aren't pricing in much much worry about what's going on in their little environments. Um, so, so how how are you sort of thinking about about U.S. dollar credit right now? And I say U.S. dollar, most of that's probably going to be corporate U.S. corporates, but um, also U.S. dollar issuers around the world, which have an impact on on U.S. corporate credit as well.
1: Yeah. So um, I think we learned a couple of things. So not not only should we not have taken. Uh, much of an economic signal from uh, the flattening of of the yield curve, we also have learned uh, that we shouldn't have taken uh, an, an, uh, an economic signal from the decline in the price of oil. And I think most mostly and most loudly, at least, it was people who were looking for a reason to be bearish and have been calling for a recession for a while and saying, this is it, this is it, this is oil. But now we know that you can take out, you, you can look at the high yield index ex-oil. You can look at uh, S and P earnings X oil. It makes analytical sense, uh, because you want to separate, uh, something that's an idiosyncratic phenomenon to that sector as was the shale oil boom, uh, from the underlying economic, uh, the rest of the economy. And it became a little more complicated because, uh, of the boom, uh, the, 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 boom in shale oil led to a whole lot of issuance in, in the, in the high yield sector. Um, inflating the, the share uh, of, of the high yield indices that uh, was made up by um, uh, oil, oil producers. So, uh, you know, I was on a panel, I remember about a year ago, uh, where people said, no, no, you just can't separate oil from this phenomenon. I said, I think you have to, because the credit cycle, uh, is, it doesn't look to be in the same place as the oil production uh, cycle. And now we know that's true. We didn't, you know. I, I, I think the jury's not out on that. I think, well, I, I think uh, that that case has been uh, settled. And the underlying credit cycle is much, much longer. One of the things you know, I've been I've been talking about for quite some time is that this credit cycle. for years now that this credit cycle was going to be much shallower and much longer than anything we've ever experienced. And the simple reason is we started out from a position of a massive credit overhang. In fact, the whole world did. We had a global credit boom. Uh, whether whether it was Brazil or China or the U.S. or you know all around the world was a massive expansion of credit driven not so you know wasn't driven so much by low rates as, as people suggest it was just we had a stable macroeconomic environment and m- really rapid financial innovation uh, the people you know a lot of american bankers the large banks that we 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 uh we talk about daily and we we see daily you know the morgan stanleys and the goldman Sachs's and the bank of americas and merrill lynchs uh they were saying okay we've got all these wonderful credit products for consumers and, 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 and for homeowners in the United States. The first one to take these to all these foreign countries wins. And that's, kind of, that's how we got the, the, global, uh, the global credit boom. The emerging market economies are still working through it. Fortunately for them, they started at a lower level of overall, overall, overall leverage uh, so that they can handle it. We got ourselves to a really nasty position and we've been working our, our way out of it. But when you have that credit overhang, you just can't have a V-shaped recovery. That's the first thing. Uh, the second thing is you're you're wrought with disaster myopia. You're always remembering uh, the, crisis, the crisis, even though now it's you know eight 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 years uh, behind us. That lingers with you, and and you know just how, how recently would, uh, was it that you know, with the Deutsche Bank uh, travails that. Uh, people were saying oh see this is lehman 2 this is lehman 2 here it comes yeah. it's just fresh in our memory even though it was 8 years ago and the rearview mirror is just not our friend it keeps it it, it has been the biggest source of underperformance uh, for investors uh, over the past over the past 8 years so the psychological uh, the, the the psychological wounds keep us from taking risk in the real economy uh, the way we normally would in a credit cycle and that's extending things anytime we get a little bit hot a little bit ahead of ourselves people pull back this you know, and and they say no no okay we're running too hot we got we have to be careful here recession's around the corner and the same thing in the markets we get out ahead of ourselves people start talking about bubbles more than usual and and we typically get a sell off and and things calm down uh, this is the process I see playing out for quite some time until the memory uh, you know and and until that that image in the rearview mirror fades enough for us to take enough risk to get ourselves in trouble again and I just think that's given the magnitude of what we went through. It's going to be a while before we get there. And uh, the U.S. is ahead of the rest of the world in this credit cycle. And, and uh, their their lagging is going to dampen our credit cycle, extending, extending it further. I think the emerging markets have started an L-shaped recovery, much like the one that, 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 that we've gone through. This is why it's hard to get super, super bullish emerging markets. I want to buy all the emerging market stocks kind of thing. But uh, you can recognize that they've probably seen their worst uh, and uh, there's some assets that you can buy and, 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 and um, there's some opportunities that you can take advantage of if, if the price points uh, present themselves. So in short, uh, the credit cycle is likely to be much longer and much more shallow, but it's going to be bumpy in the sense that people will get scared whenever we start running a little bit hot and then things will cool down. And then, you know, so, so I'm not afraid of it. Um, I'm, not, I'm not afraid of the asset class.
0: So with regards to emerging markets, I think I think one thing that people like to do is look at sort of emerging market indices of debt to GDP or total credit or, you know, whatever risk factor you want to take a look at. Um, And and then you can sort of separate out into, okay, what's China doing? Because China's the uh, second or third largest economic block in the world, depending on how you count it. And um, what's the rest of emerging markets doing? In a, in a much more, um, I guess, sectoral would be the word to say, uh, basis. Um, so, you know, you sort of describe the the beginnings of an L-shaped recovery, arguably delayed by high commodity prices in the immediate post-crisis period, when the U.S. sort of was beginning that 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 process. Um, but but for China, it, it, it's sort of a little bit different. I mean, they're, they're the amount of credit that they have currently extended and have been extending um, is sort of a completely different animal from the rest of emerging markets, both in terms of gross size and the sort of where it looks like to be in stages. So would you sort of treat China a little bit differently from the the rest of EM and, and even even putting the rest of EM into one basket's a little unfair, but we're going to have to draw a line somewhere. Um, but, but would you, because to me, China definitely does look different from the beginning of an L-shaped recovery as you described. So what do you think about that?
1: So uh, this is going to be a really disappointing answer, but I don't distinguish. I mean that you should analytically. There's there are reasons to uh, to discriminate, uh, but investors never do. They allocate to emerging. They look at China, and if China's okay, and maybe if they're if if they're if they're really assiduous about their due diligence, they'll take a look at Brazil too, and they'll say, okay, I've got emerging markets, and then they allocate to the asset class. It it's horrible because. Within emerging markets, you know you have commodity exporters, commodity importers, they have all kinds of different issues, uh, but people, the guys who ask the, the asset allocators who have the big money, uh, they kind of say, do I want to allocate to emerging markets? And then they say, do I want to allocate to bonds or equities? And within bonds, do I want to allocate to hard currency bonds or local currency bonds? And it really is uh, that, that basic. Fundamentally, uh, I think that the situation in China is, is different. They have more leverage, but they also, I think, um, have uh, a lot of degrees of freedom with which to uh, to, to to confront it. Uh, they um, can go in, they can do things that other 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 places uh, uh, can't do, uh, policy-wise. Uh, and they're pretty sharp, uh, and uh, and uh, they don't take bold steps. They're always incrementalists. They're always afraid of. The policy reaction function is really afraid of unintended consequences, so they'll experiment on a particular region, or they'll go slowly. They they uh, they're cautious, and, and I think that uh, they tend to do a good job. They're, they're they're super smart, and they just have, like I say, more degrees of, of, of freedom than than Western policymakers do. The other thing is, most of they do have some dollar-denominated debt, uh, but not enough um, to really create a large imbalance, and the capital account is closed. China can sit back and say okay it's your time to default we're going to restructure you and 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 that allows them to do it in much more orderly fashion they don't they won't let the markets dictate it uh so so the odds of them muddling through i think are quite high uh that's that's got to be your base case i know that you know every day someone is calling for the banking system to implode or the real estate market to crumble but Uh, and that could happen. The risks are there. They do have a lot of leverage. I don't want to understate that. But there are many mitigating factors that just don't obtain in normal economies, and almost all of these factors play to China's favor, increasing the odds of them uh, muddling through. So if China muddles through, I think it's priced for, uh, it's not priced for muddling through. It's more priced for people being concerned, uh, and and that makes me uh, at, at the margin positive uh, on, on on China even though I think it's going to take a long time for them to get uh to to get out from under their their debt burden because secularly their growth rate is declining for demographic reasons right something i've written been writing about since two thousand and eleven and it's happening so they're you know uh, their y star, their their natural uh, rate of growth is no longer ten or eight. It's probably closer to three or four, and that's a big deal uh, for them. It still it gives them a nominal GDP of six to seven percent, which makes it easier to grow out from under your debt burden. Much much easier than it is for 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 mature countries, but it it, it makes it much more difficult than when nominal GDP was growing at sixteen percent or or fourteen percent. So um, I, I think. Um, China will be uh, the touchstone for people allocated to emerging markets, and I think they're going to go up and down, but in a you know L-shaped muddle muddle through uh, process. I, I do want to address one additional point. You'll hear a lot of people talking about the BIS's nine point five trillion dollar number. I don't know if you've heard that, but a lot of the people who, particularly at the beginning of the year and and late last year, who were very bearish and said the dollar rise is going to kill everybody else, and then turn the gun on itself. Uh, it, it, really kind of a pop apocalyptic view, and the number that they cited was this this study from um the b i s that said nine point five trillion dollars flowed into emerging markets of course, what they didn't do is give you the full context that's what flowed into emerging markets from two thousand and eight until two thousand and fourteen and uh that number is flawed. It, it, it's a source of concern uh, for a lot of guys out there still. So if if people talk about the, the strong dollar killing emerging markets, this they almost for sure have bought into this argument that I think is fundamentally flawed. And it's fundamentally flawed for several reasons. The first is between 2008 and 2014, so 9.5 trillion dollars of inflows, but countries also grew a fair amount as well. About half that money, about half those inflows went to China, we reckon. Um, and just over that same period, 2008 to 2014, uh, Chinese GDP in dollar terms went from $5 trillion to $12 trillion. So boom, $7 trillion right there. So I'm not saying that China doesn't have a debt problem, but it's not nearly as bad as when you hear a number like $9.5 trillion and you're not taking into account the denominator uh, whatsoever. The, the the second factor uh, that that's important is a lot of uh, of this borrowing took place at the corporate level, whereas, in, pri- whereas in, in in prior crises it took place at the sovereign level. If a co- if corporates blow up, not only can you control it, but uh, it's lo- a, a lot less uh, damaging uh, to the financial system. When a sovereign blows up, it's over. Uh, everybody goes down. So uh, the the downside if if the debt is primarily corporate. The consequences are easier to manage and 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 potentially a lot less uh, a lot less dramatic the the third point is um, in these emerging markets you know back when I started my career uh, there were no local markets now you go to Brazil they have asset managers they have insurance companies uh, they have they've had massive financial deepenings and deepening and this is true th- throughout throughout the emerging markets so there's a domestic bid for this paper it used to be uh, that you know, is Bill Gross buying or selling? Are the tourists buying or selling emerging markets? And and that's how their fate was was determined. So uh, uh, these three factors, I think, are significant mitigators. In addition to the fact that these countries carry much more in the way of reserves and tend to have fixed floating exchange rates instead of the fixed ones that got them into trouble way uh, way back when. Uh, so all it's it just uh, a, a lot less compelling a story than the nine point five trillion. Uh, Suggest you know the kind of zero edge let's scare the hell out of you with a very large number and not give you uh not 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 give you the full uh, the full context but um it, it, it increases the odds that emerging markets are going to be able uh, to 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 muddle through
0: yeah one of the other interesting stats that I think is floating around out there is not only that uh, China's undergone fiscal easing to the tune of 2% of GDP between January 2015 and uh, August of 2016. So they were running a small uh, budget surplus of 60 bips worth of GDP um, in January 2015. They're now you know, a percent and a half as of August uh, in a fiscal deficit, that's a massive fiscal easing and it shows just how quickly they can turn what appears to be an enormous and very unwieldy ship. And the other one that uh, that we like is um, in the year from August 2015 to August 2016, uh, the PBOC balance sheet contracted the FX reserves on the PBOC balance sheet contracted by 2.8 trillion won, which sounds enormous. Um, but they've extended credit to banks um, to the tune of 2.7 trillion won. So, you know, it's a, it's a shift. And, and that speaks to the financial deepening you're talking about. There is a bid for liabilities in uh, in Chinese won that, that wouldn't have existed if China was taking place, you know, the same sort of set of facts was taking place in the 1980s versus, or even the late 1990s versus now, where, you know, you have a, a a completely different degree of financialization and um, you know access to savings and uh, lending intermediation than you did you know at earlier stages. It's a really important point George and
1: I don't think a lot of people are taking into account. A lot of the guys who have been very bearish in emerging markets, they're guys that look like me, you know, they're older, older and they've been through a few wars and they're waiting for the good old-fashioned crisis to you know, this is what they've seen every single time it always ends with a blow up, right? A parabolic move into dollars. Uh, and out of the local currency, and then things explode, and that's when you get the 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 kinds of um, asset prices you can make a career on. You swoop in and you buy these things. It's happened so many times for so many of the uh, of the old wizened uh, EM hands that um, they they just are conditioned to believe it has to be like that again. Uh, so so they're and they're not taking into account all these structural changes in emerging markets uh, that that I, I just mentioned. In fact, I wrote a piece probably. I don't know, a year and a half, two years ago, saying why emerging markets aren't going to crash uh, this time, and they could crash. It's possible. I think the odds are even less now than they were than they than they were then. Uh, but it just enumerates a lot of the stuff that we were talking about, and a few things more as to how it's different. But you know, if you've you know, if you're, you know, Lucy and Charlie Brown, you with the with the football, you're conditioned that she's going to pull that football away, and poor Charlie Brown falls for it every time. But the rest of us know what's going to happen, and I think a lot of guys I think that's got to happen in emerging markets too, and they have a hard time letting go of um uh, of the, of of that paradigm, and and that has let, that led to a, a, the kind of the peak in 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 bearishness that we saw in emerging markets at the beginning of this year.
0: So, if you're fairly optimistic on emerging markets, then I mean, I I think the classic and not to say correct, but the classic sort of view would be oh, well, you must be relatively bearish about the US dollar and relatively bullish about commodities. Um, That's certainly been the sort of pattern matching that we've seen, um, not only in recent economic history, but dating back to uh, the 2000s, is this in you know, this deep link between uh, emerging market economic growth, commodity supply and demand, and and the U.S. dollar, um, all sort of intertwined. Um, by the sounds of it, I mean with the, with the Fed uh, being cautious, but not um, but but not aggressive. It, it would sound to me, you know, that you wouldn't be really super positioned either way on the U.S. dollar. And with regards to commodities, we've you know seen this massive clear out, but we've also seen a fairly large rally off of the bottom. So so how do you sort of think about that complex and that sort of that sort of pattern matching? maybe even being wrong or or how you know how that fits into your into your uh view of the world
1: uh, i'm not uh crazy bullish uh, emerging markets. I think it's an L-shaped process uh, and it's going to take quite some time, a little bit, and it'll be unsatisfying, uh, unsatisfying recoveries, much like w- w- the one we, we, we've had here because of the credit overhang. Uh, but I do think the downside to them is limited. So if you buy stocks, you know, you have to wait for the dip. You have to wait for the sell off. You have to get a good entry point to make it attractive. I don't think you can buy it, buy it just blindly. Although I do think as a long term trade, if you buy EEM, against S- SPY and you know you're gonna hold it for five years I think you're going to end up doing pretty well uh, but you know outright buying EEM I think you have to you, you'd have to pick your you pick your price points whereas uh, emerging markets uh, local currency bonds particularly the sovereigns I like that a lot better because you get you, you get you get an attractive carry uh, and I don't think the currencies are going to destro- going to get destroyed I think uh, I, I, pro- I think they're at the margin going to appreciate over time and we've seen the worst in, in emerging market currencies, for many of the reasons I, 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 I enumerated, uh, you know, a, a couple a couple minutes ago. So that's a more attractive asset class for me. I'm opportunistic and, on, on the stocks uh, and price point sensitive, but on uh, emerging market local currency uh, debt, uh, I, I like that. I like that quite a lot. We're also seeing, uh, and this is the nuance uh, to the old pattern matching that you were talking about. Uh, I'm seeing weakness in the funding currencies and strength in the risk currencies. Now, Aussie and Kiwi kind of they have a foot in, in both camps there, but it's typically, you know, the euro, the pound, uh, uh, the, the yen. I know the pound has had some idiosyncratic stuff going on lately, but uh, it's a funding currency. Swiss is also a funding currency. I expect these currencies to depreciate against the dollar, but I don't expect um, marginally, not dramatically, but I expect over time them to, to, to grind to grind lower. And I would expect the emerging market currencies to grind higher uh over over time as you know they work their way through their uh their L-shaped uh L-shaped uh, recovery uh and that makes an for an attractive setup you know buying emerging market local currency bonds and funding them in a basket of currencies like uh the yen and euro um, so uh th- th- I think that's different from the, the the pattern matching that you were talking about. Usually, it's dollar goes up against everything or down against everything. I would expect less dramatic uh, and 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 uh, more differentiated uh, going forward. Because if the dollar starts getting too strong, the Feds are going to ease back, and not because of the pass through to the domestic economy, as I said earlier, but because uh, they they know the it can be a powerful. Uh, financial signal uh, to people that gets people to freeze up uh, and uh, behave in a much more risk-averse way uh, quite, quite quickly.
0: So then uh, with regard to commodities, I mean, oil appears to have made a Possibly generational bottom in the in, in the year of 2016, which has been quite something to sort of watch in real time. Um, how do you feel about oil and and other sort of industrial commodities, uh, separate and distinct? I think and rightfully so from from precious metals. Um, they tend to be correlated, but I, I do think there's there's sort of more going on there than just oh all commodities are the same.
1: Yeah, I I, I think the 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 most important point in my mind is we're not going to see people piling into commodities. Uh, the way they did in you know 2003, 2004, 2005, 2006. There's not going to be a compelling story, uh, uh, encouraging uh, uh, asset allocators to come piling in, driving up everything indiscriminately. Uh, so it will, it, it, there'll be less one-way financial demand and probably more to and fro, based uh, a little bit more than usual on uh, the actual supply and demand of the of the commodity itself. You know. I always, I like to quote the the the, the stats and, and it, this is approximate, uh, but it's illustrative. Uh, you go back to, you know, the 20 years or 16 years, let's say, uh, to 2000 and the percentage of transactions in, in the oil futures markets that corresponded to commercial users was about 70, 75% and the financial, uh, you know, of financial participants was the remainder. Now that's inverted. So the, the primary toing and fro you know, in commodity markets is now financial operators and no longer uh, the, the commercial guys. Um, like I said, don't quote me exactly on those numbers, but it's approximate, uh, the story, for, for, for this, uh, approximate enough for the story uh, to be to be robust. and that has been a huge driver uh, over the past uh, uh, let's say 13 years on the way up and on the way down, indiscriminate buying and indiscriminate selling. I don't think we're going to have the compelling narrative. Uh, uh, to get people uh, that dramatically allocated all, all at the same time. So, again, kind of up and down and, and no massive direction. It looks like oil wants to go higher uh, just from the just looking at the charts. And I, I think there are a lot of hedge fund guys that are kind of stubbornly bearish. They're looking for that dollar story uh, that you know brings everything down kind of thing uh, to materialize. Uh, but um, it looks like it wants to go higher and everything else, I think, will, will – won't do it. There'll be trading opportunities here and there, but I don't see uh, a great an opportunity to allocate across the board uh, to, uh, to to commodities. Um, a lot will depend on what happens with rates. In periods where rates are going higher, that will drag the precious metals down, and uh, some of the other uh, commodities, not the softs, but the other commodities, might take a cue from that, as might the dollar. Uh, so I expect as rates go higher, there'll be you know, periods of that. Uh, but it's more of a uh, I think a trading market than uh, than than an inv- investing market
0: well fair enough all right so I, it would also be great to just get some thoughts from you about risk management I mean we, we had talked about your trading style and about your pro- portfolio construction earlier on Um would you, would you have some sort of if you could tell a, a young uh, investor sort of three things about how you manage risk? What would those sort of three things be? And I think this is really instructive, just a little bit of background to talk to investors. Not oh, how do you identify a cheap stock or a cheap you know a trade that looks good, but. How do you think about the, the substance of risk? Because I think that more often than not is, is what someone who's managing money is doing. They're identifying risk. Um, so, so would you have sort of three key sort of points about risk? Probably. I probably have it? three. Uh, I, I know I have a couple. The first thing, the most important thing
1: is risk management is more important than good ideas. You can survive on good risk management and no ideas. You can't survive on good ideas and no risk management your batting average has to be too high. When you're, when you're, when you're investing based on ideas, it becomes much harder to stop things out, uh, and much harder to recover from, uh, the times that you're, the, the times that you're wrong, because you're saying, if I liked it at 60, I really have to like it at 40. And, and it ends up, uh, to, uh, with people having outsized positions that, that, uh, uh that make them go under, uh, you know, um, risk management, uh, is key, and you have to understand what the positioning is what the psychology is, and a lot of that is just a function of spending a lot of time in front of the screens uh, uh and you have to know uh you also have to know how uh, to uh, to ride your ride your winners uh cutting your losses is kind of the the one oh one class in risk management that anybody can do, but riding a winner is really really tough because if even if you're right and you have a great trend you're going to have counter trend moves. Uh, that um that will make you question your your underlying uh, thesis so um, that's that's an important point. You have to look as well at the composition of all the elements in your portfolio when you size things uh, the, the key to holding on to a winner for for a long uh, for a long time is sizing it right uh, if if it's too big, you just won't be able to take the pain when you get that counter trend move, no matter how much conviction you have. Uh, in, in in the position. And in fact, the longer you think, the longer the trend, the potential trend that you think you're 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 trying to catch, the smaller you want your position to be, because that will allow you to ignore the vicissitudes in the short term and get to get to get get to your end point. It's kind of paradoxical because if you think you have a really good trend, you you would normally want to size it up. I mean, your 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 intu- intuition would tell you to size it up because you have a lot of conviction and it can go really far. It's just, uh, it's just hard to do. Uh, and there are other little tricks, I think, that, that, that you can use to um, uh, enhance that process. Uh, so if you, let's say, you buy something at a particular level, and like right, right now, for, for example, uh, I like uh, this fives-30s trade, and I also like uh, the Mexican peso against uh, the Japanese yen uh, and, and, and the euro. Uh, is it a great entry point? it might move against you in the short term because they've just had a, a a pretty decent move. But if you really want to get involved, you put on a very small position, a half size position of what you ultimately want. And then if it moves against you, you say, okay, this is where I think uh, the level is that where I would be wrong about the trend. Uh, if you get close to that level, then you can add your other half, right? And then with, with keeping that same stop that that you identified, that's a, that's a way to get involved in the trade uh, but not in the kind of size that 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 would get you out if you did have a short term a short term dip. So uh, these kinds of tricks I think are, are really important. Risk management, uber alles, is really the first thing um, that 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 you can learn. The second is um, be eclectic. Uh, don't ignore fun- fundamentals uh, just because uh, y- you can make money without them. Uh, you have to be pretty good, but you can make money without them. Try and figure out how to incorporate them uh into your risk into your risk management framework. Uh, and and, and then, then the third thing is uh know when to put your economist hat aside. Uh there are long periods of time where my economics is not really helping me uh do my trades. Um it's just easy to conflate the fundamental with the technical uh and uh that that will kill you there's a reason why economists make uh, bad investors and usually terrible traders uh, because they they they're hardwired to do uh, the 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 wrong thing at the wrong time, but um, economics can um, help. You know, it, it helps you gauge when people are wrong footed if if you have a thesis, uh, and um, it can give you some conviction to hold on to your position uh, when when it's going your way. So it it, it can be it, it, it it's a very powerful tool, but it's one that that should
0: be used uh, more sparingly than most people assume. Fascinating. So just to, before we uh, say goodbye, we've got a sort of little segment at the end where um, I've got five different topics and I'm going to ask you in each case whether you think they're trading rich or trading cheap. And, um, you know, I, I think a lot of the times people uh, in the in the broader world who, who aren't a part of financial markets don't often think of sort of the... Um, you know forward implications of something, so not just where it's at today or what's going on, you know, in the news with a given subject today, but you know what's going to happen tomorrow with it, what's going to happen a month from now, what's happened historically with it. Um, so adding that dimension of time, I think, is a really interesting way to look at the world. Um, and to be clear, I don't think any of these are meant as as a, a monetary trade or anything like that. But uh, just curious, what you think? So um, for the first one, trading rich or trading cheap? Multinational institutions like the UN, the IMF, the OECD or NATO. My bias is that they're trading cheap; that they're pretty beat
1: up. Uh, they're they're pretty—you know, everyone's talking about lost credibility, but I think they're, they're pretty beat beat up. And uh, increasingly, in a world that's less uh, U.S.-centric, having these fora uh, in, in, in which uh, to solve problems, uh, or at least to try and solve problems, is is much better uh, than, than than not having. Is that any...
0: true, even in a world where the U.S. can't sort of steer the global community towards those specific venues?
1: even more it's even more important i'm not saying you'll get better outcomes but but if you have two if if you have two cases one where the the we don't have these institutions and the us is becoming less of a hegemon right uh and we have uh the uh, w- the other world is where we do have these institutions and the us is 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 no, is, is no longer uh, you know it's becoming less of a hegemon um which one is better the one in which there's for uh, for these people to try in certain cases cobbled 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 cobble together cobbled together solutions i think overall you know as as um uh Charles Kindleberger said a long time ago uh, uh, for there to be uh stability there must be a stabilizer uh, you, you almost need a hegemon uh, to impose stability on the system because the more the, the more uh power players that you have. Uh, be, uh, the more difficult it becomes exponentially to to find a, to find a solution. So the world's going to get more more complicated with the U.S.'s role uh, declining, uh, whether you like that or not. That's you know depends on what country you're from and what your biases are. But I think that's the reality. So at the margin, it's better to have these institutions uh, for sure than not. Uh, though uh, you know don't don't you still can't expect great things.
0: Got it. Okay. How about U.S. fiscal policy, trading rich or trading cheap? And I say this in the context of a lot of speculation around what some of the prospects are following the election in November and how uh, the presidential candidate from either party may be able to work to sort of loosen the purse strings a little bit in the United States. Uh, What do you think? Trading rich or trading cheap?
1: I think it's it's trading rich in the sense that a lot of people have expectations that we're going to switch to since monetary policy is not working as well. A lot of people just woke up and realized monetary policy is not as powerful as they thought it was. Now, the good news is that a lot of those people thought monetary policy was going to blow up the system a long time ago, and it didn't. So then they were really, really wrong. But even the people that were positive on monetary policy are a little bit disappointed that we didn't get more bang for, for, for those bucks. And I think everyone has learned uh, uh, that um, I, I, you know, about endogenous, almost everyone has learned about endogenous money and how it's really about risk taking in the system. That's what drives monetary policy and that and that hasn't healed so the disappointment in monetary policy is leading to people saying well they're gonna have to resort to fiscal because they got nothing else and I think there's too much talk of that it's just too hard Uh, so it's trading it's trading rich because people's expectations we might get some infrastructure done um, uh, but I I, I don't expect uh, I think people are expecting too much
0: okay trading rich or trading cheap surfing
1: Uh, Well, yeah, for me, it's always cheap for me, even a bad day (laughs) surfing is is really, really, really good. So um, it's funny, uh, you know, I I longboard a fair amount, and uh, it's just better than going to the gym regularly or swimming in the ocean. It's something I'm very happy to go and do, and even when the conditions aren't good, and even if you're not a great surfer, you leave the water with the stoke, as they call it, uh, every single day. Uh, And if you can take your dog with you, um, uh, it's even better.
0: Alright, trading rich or trading cheap? Active management.
1: It's definitely trading cheap, uh, but uh, I, I do think that for most people, uh, passive management is better. They just don't have the skill set uh, to do it. It's really hard to identify people with the skill set, and there aren't that many. And there are a lot of people who seem to have the skill set for a first, uh, certain state of the world, and then don't evolve when 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 the state of that state of the, the, the world changes. So you're doing really well in the bull market, but won't do well in the bear market. You're doing really well in an emerging market bull market, uh, and and you won't do well when it's a it's a developed market bear market. Uh, developed market. Bull market, so you, a lot of you know guys are really good at distressed at plays, but that only lasts a while. It might not last a full cycle, so it's hard to find an active manager that can you know take whatever pitch comes uh come com, comes their way and to hop around from one to another increases the chance of of making an error choosing uh, choosing the manager so i'm i'm not i'm not one of these guys who says active management is is great way better than passive i i think it should be used uh, of the two you know, you know the two i think the, it's the active management that should be used sparingly uh, but there's definitely a there's definitely a role for it uh and it like I said, it, one of the biggest uh, discoveries for me when I, got, uh, when I got to the buy side is I saw these guys that didn't know anything about economics whatsoever. It was clear they were one step away from economic, uh, econ- being economically retarded, uh, and, uh, but they could make money. And I looked at it, and they knew how to manage risk. They knew how to assess the psychology of the market. Look at a guy like David Tepper. He does not go very deep. But he just know he doesn't over he knows not to overthink it, and he gets the basic psychological picture uh, uh, right so uh, learning learning to do that um, is um, learning to do that is a super uh, a super important skill and not 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 everyone has it. Uh, but if you learn to risk manage uh, well, you can be a good uh, active manager, even if you're not the best macroeconomic uh, macroeconomist on the planet.
0: Well, that's fantastic. I will let you get back to uh, your dog and your evening out there in California. And thank you so much for coming on. It was awesome to hear your thoughts and to get a little bit of insight into how you view the world and uh, come back again soon. we're looking forward to seeing you on Twitter and, and looking forward to any any writing you might do. And and what, what's your Twitter account? Twitter account is mark underscore doubt. and your uh, blog
1: behavioral macro
0: behavioral macro and that's on time. I don't write
1: too much, but I can be I can I can be baited into writing a piece.
0: <laughs> well, we'll look forward to the next one. Thanks very much, Mark. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me,
1: George. It was a pleasure.
0: This week on the Bespoke Cast. Once again, I'm Bespoke Investment Group's macro strategist, George Burks. If you'd like to learn more about our firm, please visit bespokepremium.com and follow us on Twitter at Bespoke Invest. Subscribers to our research receive access to the Bespoke Cast one week before public release, in addition to the wide range of reports, data sets, analysis, and commentary that we send out daily. Special thanks to the Free Music Archive for the music in this episode. The track is called Marathon Man by Jason Shaw and is made available under the Creative Commons license. Please visit freemusicarchive.org for more information. Copyright 2016. Bespoke Investment Group, LLC. The information herein was obtained from sources which Bespoke Investment Group, LLC believes to be reliable, but we do not guarantee its accuracy. Neither the information nor any opinions expressed constitute a solicitation of the purchase or sale of any securities or related instruments. Bespoke Investment Group, LLC is not responsible for any losses incurred from any use of this information.